We're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Litzmeyer. My guest for 162 is Roy Benson, the frontman from Asleep at the Wheel, formed in 1969, has released 26 albums since 1973 based in Austin, Texas. You're right now listening to an early hit, The Letter That Johnny Walker Read from 1975's Texas Gold, their third album. Today we're going to be talking about their 50th anniversary album, Half Hundred Years. We'll listen to the title track off that. Then we'll go back to an instrumental from 1990, heard an Alice Stroll from Keeping Me Up Nights, and back even farther to Am I High from 1977. The album's called The Wheel. And finally, we'll return to another track from the new album, The Road Will Hold Me Tonight, featuring Emmy Lou Harris and Willie Nelson, which was actually recorded in the early 80s but never released until now. For more information, see asleepatthewheel.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support the effort, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. If you enjoy this podcast, I encourage you to go leave a nice rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. Let's get going. So I will have played a little of the letter that Johnny Walker read from Texas Gold 1975. So that was your third album, but you'd already been playing with the band five years. This is a songwriting podcast. I know sort of your original main songwriter was Leroy Preston, but you had, you know, a lot of covers, things from the country swing. It seems like original songs were not the point of the band. Was that element part of the original pitch when you were getting together, or that's just something that Leroy wanted to do? No, me and Leroy both were songwriters, and what we wanted to do was to write our own versions of classic styles and also do remakes of classic songs. Yeah, yeah and you've got a co-write even on the, the first album, The Letter That Johnny Walker Read, so that's you and Leroy and George Frayne. Can you say a little about how was your co-writing process at that time? Well, it wasn't George Frayne, it was Chris Frayne. Chris Frayne, okay. Which is George's brother. George was Commander Cody, and his brother, Chris, was a very talented artist who did all the Commander Cody covers of their albums and did work for us and was a great guy. And one day, 1974, he came to us and he said, hey, I got a great song title for a country western song. I said, what is it? He said, the letter that Johnny Walker read. He thought it was funny. And so me and Leroy went to the practice room on St. Elmo Road in South Austin and wrote it in the style of Dolly Parton, a Porter Wagner duet, because there's a recitation part in it. That's who we envisioned doing it. We sent it off to them and they never got it. We didn't know who they were. They didn't know probably in the mail. So me and Chris sang it. We recorded it at the Jack Clement studio, used the band basically. And it was a top 10 Billboard country Western hit record. But what's interesting about it is it was everything the sleep wheel was. In other words, there was saxophones on it, but they played along with the fiddles and the steel guitar. And for instance, when we went to play the Opry, the Grand Old Opry in 1975, they said, oh, by the way, you can't have your saxophone player on the show. We don't allow horns on the show, which was kind of bullshit. At which point we said, well, why? It's on the record that you like so much. But that was something else. But anyway, yeah, that's how we wrote it. We just collaborated, and he and I don't remember who came up with the hook, which was Dear John, but it was a great hook, you know. And Chris singing it was was the trick, you know. Her voice just fit that perfectly. All right, so 25-plus albums later, 45 years later after that, 
the Texas Gold album. We want to hear the title track from Half a Hundred Years. So can you say a little about the horns are still there? You got a lot of the same elements still here. This is a more stomping tune. This is not a, you know, a Dolly Parton-esque ballad here. During the pandemic, I had a lot of time to write as opposed to when I'm on the road, I don't have a lot of time to write. Just before the pandemic, I went down to see Jamie Johnson, a fine songwriter friend of mine. And I said, Jamie, it's next year's the Sleep at the Wheels 50th anniversary. And he said, half a hundred years? And I said, I'm going to write that. So COVID comes, we all get shut down, I get sick. After everything got a little bit better and folks could come over to the studio, I just cut that with just me, guitar, bass, drums, and just sort of put it away. You know, the lyrics came easy because they're just about observing from a uh, distance 50 years of having this band. But the bridge came out of just the put in me, five times 10 and 10 times five times two. Just throw out enough numbers quickly enough so that it seems (laughs) more confusing than it is. Yeah, but that all adds up to 50, you know, five times 10 and 10 times five times two. And half, half of that makes it. So, and it was funny uh, when we were filming the video for this, one of the cameramen <laughs> said to Sam, who produced the record, he's my son, but he produced the record. And he said, Well, man, that's really cool. That's kind of like a rap song. <laughs> I said, Yeah, okay, cool. All rap is is talking in rhythm. So, whatever. So the track just laid there for a couple of months and Sam heard it and said, that needs horns. The other thing that we always do with the Sleep Out the Wheel, we nicknamed it the Hillbilly Horns back in the 80s, and it's fiddles and horns and steel guitars, and so that's where the horns play, and then the fiddle answers instead of a trombone or a trumpet or the fiddle answers. So anyway, that's one of the signature Sleep at the Wheel things. So that's what we put in there, and the rhythmic aspect is got more to do with funk music you know, but it certainly is country folk, you know. I've missed a lot of things. I know I've missed you once again. You asked me where I've been, my friend. Well, I've been around the bend. And back again and here again I missed your friend I fear It's just that I've been on the road For half a hundred years Hills and dales tell many tales I've heard them all my friend With Willie we've been back and forth The road it never ends From Bakersfield like Buck and Merle We've lived a hundred years I tell you friends I've seen a lot in half a Five times ten or ten times five times two makes quite a sum. Half of that makes fifty years, boys. It's been quite a run. So start the jam, roll one up and ice another beer. I'll tip a hat and raise a toast to half a hundred years. Seem long, don't get me wrong, most y'all would agree 
The fashions change, they change the game And then the locks don't fit the key There's nothing to be feared, my friend No need to shed a tear It's just, I never thought I'd last a half a hundred years Watch the same sun burn the sand and melt the mountain snow. I sailed the seas and felt the breeze that only sailors know. I played the king and seen many things that often bring a tear. You'll see a lot if you hang around for half a hundred years. Five times ten or ten times five times two makes quite a sum. Half of that makes fifty years old. It's been quite a run So start the jam Roll one up and ice another beer I tip my hat and raise a toast To half a hundred years Yeah Half a hundred years mm. Might catch up to Willie one of these days My, my, my. So you didn't have the violin squeak, squeak, you know, that kind of came with the horns as one block there. Yeah, I just put it down with me fingerpicking and the bass and, and the drums and the piano. And then we have the studio here in my house, you know, the piano's over there. And then you go downstairs and there's a control room. Then you go over the other wing and there's a drum room. So they're spread out all over the house and it really works. That's the good news is the shorter distance between writing and playing. So just to clarify, so you're actually playing the rhythm instruments on this or you got your bandmates into and you recorded them? record together no i just play guitar all right but you are so playing both the finger picking intro and that acoustic and then the electric solo in the middle those are both you oh no that's me on acoustic and that's my son sam on the electric he's the guitar picker and he produces the records and engineers and he's been a hell of an asset because he plays that kind of guitar a whole lot better than i do and again he also produces the record you need somebody you trust because i produced the record for years i worked with other producers occasionally and that was always helpful and educational. But for the most part, I've been producing myself. And when Sam worked his way up through the studio organization, it was great because, uh, again, like I tell you about writing, I always wrote from the time I was a kid. But when we got into producing records, running a band, performing live, you don't have a lot of time to write. Writing needs time. That's all. You need time and space. So... Sam taking over the production leaves me more time to write and create. You've got such a big band often that it, I would think it would be a kind of a constant producing challenge of like, when is the pedal steel going to be audible? That you've got the hills and dales and many tales. That's sort of the verse where the pedal steel is answering the guitar line every time. Hills and dales tell many tales. I've heard them all, my friend. With Willie, we've been back and forth. The road, it never ends. From Bakersfield, like Buckingham. But again, is that sort of a production decision? Is that like the band is playing it live through and kind of deciding where to make space as opposed to the violin having that spot or somebody else? 
Well, the producer has the last call and me, you know, it's always a collaboration and we ask them to throw out their ideas and then we'll include the ones that work. The piano on this, was that overdubbed? Do you try to record with the whole band live as much as possible? Oh yeah, we're a live band recording. We have enough separation that we can do that and we allow leakage too. We're not crazy about that, but we can do it the other way too. And for the half a hundred year album, we had to do that because of the pandemic. We sent tapes over to Australia. We sent tapes up to New England. We sent tapes to California, excuse me, files. And my estimation of that is, as I tell people, back when I had my big studio down in Austin and I had all these different rooms, and one of the rooms, the guy says, well, I can't see the drummer in this. I said, well, neither can Ray Charles, and he seems to come in just fine. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, you play with your ears, you play with your ears. And if you're not playing with your ears, you're using the wrong approach, I always felt. So the people that have been in this band understand the feel. But it starts with the rhythm section. So if you can get a great rhythm groove overdubbing in the modern day with the equipment that we have and the technology we have enables you to really maintain a live kind of groove. You know, close your eyes and think he's there. That's what I say. And listen for the downbeat. So these reunions, you know, the fact that you have Leroy and you have Chris O'Connell and you have all these folks from past lineups, like they were not actually reunions. They were They were sending them files over the internet and saying, please record this. Is that for the most part true? No, we, even better than that, we had them piped in while we cut their song. Ah, okay. So everybody was there and, and they could say, no, nah, it's a little high. I want you to lower it to key of A. Okay. Or that's a little fast. And you slow it down, right? Or how do you like it? And that's how we made those decisions. Yes, but you want the steel fill here? Why not? What do you think? And it's a collaborative decision. Being able to do it in real time, you know, with very little latency made it all happen. And then that way they knew what was coming and then the files come to them and it's up to them to create the atmosphere so that to make believe that you're in the same room. I would think the latency is still long enough that it's them listening and participating and commenting, not actually trying to, from Australia, play along with the band. We've not beat physics yet. No, there is a way to do that, but no. I mean, because, you know, you can delay. You'd have to know exactly what the latency is, which you can do, and then you delay the track, you know. But it's not worth it. Any sort of thought about how you're, at this point, putting together a structure of one of these, right? You've got, it's roughly a blues progression, you know, that you go up to the four and you get somehow back down to the one. It's not, you know, your normal, it's not your drawn out blues, but being able to use something that's going to be that familiar, but yet make it sound super fresh. And you're saying, like, a lot of what delivers that on here is the fact that the horns are leading that off. But that wasn't even on in your original conception. Can you say something about, I don't know, are you writing a lot of songs or, like, what counts as too similar to something you've written before, or you just don't worry about that? Oh, no, man. I'm either writing to a form, I'm either writing on demand, in other words, for a film, for a commercial, for a project, or I'm writing from inspiration alone. In other words, I got an idea, whether it's vocal, words, or melody. And those are the three things. So writing to the form is, I want to write a swing tune a la, and then fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. I want to write a country western song a la, and fill in the blank. And that's where it is. The bulk of what I'd write is, you know, sit here or on the boat, whatever, and an idea pops in my head and I jot it down and maybe I finish a half a verse, maybe I finish one line and then I 
put in a pile of paper that grows every day and sift through them and sometimes finish them. So I guess in terms of making it fit in with the set, is maybe more a matter of how you arrange it, right? If you're going to be playing all these classic Bob Wills tunes, or you know, basically party music, and you want to throw in something that's an original, like it can't be some angsty, super person, you know, it's got to somehow stylistically fit, but you're saying like, but you're not doing that in a literal way. You're not saying most of the time, at least, you're not writing to a form of something that's going to fit in the set. It's just the fact that you've lived around this music so much and make arrangement decisions that will make it all coherent. Yeah, it's not that well planned out, really. <laughs> There's so many songs we've got to play, and we'll try out new ones, and sometimes just get bored playing the same old songs, And except for the ones that you really feel people are coming to hear, you substitute stuff. And on this reunion tour, the way we got to structure the show was to group some of the songs together because the Sleep the Wheels catalog of songs is so eclectic from the letter Johnny Walker Red country western kind of songs to, you know, swing tunes like Count Basie arranged stuff, uh, Louis Jordan arranged, Ain't Nobody Here But Us Chickens, Choo Choo Boogie. You know, it's border on swing jazz, you know. They don't border on, they are. Yeah. And so we would sometimes group all them together and then sometimes just intersperse them. I mean, we've been playing concert halls and performing arts centers but when we play a dance hall occasionally, of which there are a few, and when there are dancers, of which there are fewer than in the general population, well, then we'll play a dance set, and that's hilarious, you know. And if it's in a country western Texas dance hall, it's a whole nother ball of wax. You play a waltz, you play a two step, you play the shot of Scott and I, Joe, et cetera, et cetera. But if you play a swing dance hall wherever, where you have these retro kids dancing, Lindy hopping, et cetera, we'll play some more swing stuff they can dance to. But in the concerts, you know, we're going through eight or nine stylistically different genres of songs, you know. So I wanted to pick something a bit older that would show a different aspect of the songwriting. Perdinalis Stroll, back from Keeping Me Up Nights 1990. It's an instrumental. There's a lot more jazz chords in it. And clearly, since you gave writing credit to most of the band, and it gives everybody a chance to solo, can you say a little about, I don't know, is this even still one that's in your set? Let me ask that. No, no, the instrumentals are left out of the set. Although it's on the album, here's the thing. We always did instrumentals because that was the kind of band we wanted to demonstrate our instrumental Mm -hmm. prowess. Uh, One of our publishers kind of figured out in 1978 that the instrumental category in country music was being vacated by Chet Atkins and nominated us and we won. And I was like, oh, great. So we kept, you know, but we always did instrumentals. And so then all of a sudden we won six Grammys for instrumentals. Then they eliminated the category for some reason. But Perdinalis Stroll was, Willie Nelson owns the Perdinalis golf course, the little nine-hole golf course Willie Nelson bought. And it's a studio there where Willie records and many people. And when you played golf with uh, Willie or Pootie or any of the guys, or Willie's guys out there, if your ball was by a tree or under by a rock or something, you just kick it with your foot and move it to where you want it. And they called that the Pernalis Stroll. So we just thought that was a good golf title for the few people who knew what we were talking about. And it is a very difficult song. I wrote it and then everybody collaborated. Tim, I remember, came up with the bridge. It's Western Swing or whatever you want to call it. But yes, it's got a lot of jazz chords and it's difficult to play but it's also got finger picking which is what i do i open up with the chit atkins like finger picking
So this is one that I can see just fitting extremely well with the standards that you'd had in the set, even though it's an original tune and, you know, maybe a little different approach than a lot of other stuff you've done. But this era, I found interesting that this and the album before that, and I guess you had standard time around this time too, late 80s, where, I don't know, you'd hit the style that I feel like is still persisting in one way or the other now. Whereas maybe the early 80s stuff, do you do a lot of like those original tunes from like the framed album? Are any of those in the set anymore? No, that was uh, interesting. That was the old band had dissolved, mm-hmm. and I was putting together basically a new band. A guy at the record company offered us a deal at MCA Records with a lot of money, and he said, "And do anything but what you've done." <laughs> huh. Since I was going through all these changes, personnel changes, etc., I just went, "What the hell?" It was a hundred thousand bucks. It's like, oh, okay, and so. No, but that album has got Bonnie Raitt sang a duet with me on it that seems to have been forgotten, and there's some wonderful stuff on there. But yeah, it was the wrong kind of music at the wrong time, although there's some wonderful moments. No, there's nothing on that record that I can do because nobody's in the band anymore from that <laughs> Okay, era. or then the 10 albums, that's five years later, and you have songs, original yeah. songs like Liars, Moon, and Shorty that are also like kind of a different direction, whereas... That's not on the 10 album. That's on the... In Canada, it was called Pasture Prime. Oh, right. And in America, it was on MCA, and it just was called Asleep at the Wheel. But those were the songs that I cut from 1981 to 1985 at Willie Nelson's studio. And we didn't have a record deal, and he just said, well, when I'm not here, just go ahead and record. You know, he's been such a great friend. And by the end of those years, we had enough to put an album out. That was that one. Ten was on Epic Records, and that was what we call the 80s band. Larry Franklin, Tim Alexander, John Ely. That was an incredible band of guys, you know, that really made its own Asleep at the Wheel sound. And So one of your originals on there, Boogie Back to Texas, I know that's still in your set, right? Yeah, if it's a nice up-tempo kind of, especially a festival thing. I wrote that on stage one night. <laughs> at a concert i just had an idea and started playing and that band was so good that it would just fall in now it wasn't completed on stage but it was enough to get it and then i went and finished it so that i'm seeing is sort of the, the setup for this keep me up nice for nelly stroll which you know you've got all that that you've added so is this still the band that had started in 87 pretty much so you'd played with most of these guys for a few years at least Oh, yeah, they started in 85, 86. In fact, Dave, the drummer of that, he just retired. So, and he's been 36 years. So, yeah, 85, got them together. 86, we started recording and then started having minor hits. And 87, 88, 89, we had House of Blue Lights was a top 40, but Way Down Texas Way, they were all hits. Way Down Texas Way was Billy Joe Shaver's song. And House Blue Lights was a classic from the 40s that Huey Lewis's manager said out to record it. So we did. And Huey like, helped produce that <laughs> over the phone. And that was great because that was a comeback. It, it really was. We were all of a sudden, we were on the radio. Country music had made a turn to better music. They had <laughs> Roseanne Cash, Rodney Crowell, Steve Earle, Katie Lang, Lyle Lovett, et cetera, et cetera. We're all being successful. So, yeah, it was an exciting time for us. We'll hear more about that in just a minute. First, we got to do some ad reads. 
Since you're listening to this show, I think it's safe to say you love listening to podcasts. Well, you'll find a ton of binge-worthy podcasts, including ours on Amazon Music. So I know you feel like you got a groove. You already have a podcast player you use. But Amazon Music has some exclusive stuff like the hilarious Smart Less podcast you can hear one week before everyone else and ad-free on Amazon Music and the breathtaking true crime podcast Dr. Death Miracle Man is available two weeks early on Amazon Music. Plus, with Amazon Music, you can go hands-free with Alexa. And Amazon Music is not just for podcasts. They have thousands of music stations and top playlists to stream for free. Beyond that, if you're like me and want your music on demand and ad-free, you have to try Amazon Music Unlimited, which gives you unlimited access to over 75 million songs, plus podcast music videos and more. With Amazon Music Unlimited, you can listen to any song anywhere offline with unlimited skips. So if you don't already use a music streaming service, you gotta switch over. And YouTube does not count that cesspool filled with ads using up your bandwidth by sending you video when all you want to do is listen to audio. If you already use a different music streaming service, why not just check out the Amazon interface, see if you like it better, because I know you already use Amazon. You already have an Amazon account. And if you've never tried Amazon Music Unlimited, now is a great time for a limited time New customers can try Amazon Music Unlimited free for three months. You don't even need a credit card. Just go to Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D. That's Amazon.com slash NEMPOD to try Amazon Music Unlimited free for three months. Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D. Renews automatically. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. I also want to tell you about Masterclass. It is a streaming service. You can watch or listen to it on any device. And you're going to get way more out of it than yet another TV channel because it's got over 100 courses from world-class instructors teaching you in much the same way we try to on this podcast. But these people are even more famous than anybody I can get. I know Ray Benson is pretty damn awesome, but I'm talking about Herbie Hancock. I'm talking about Ringo Starr, Christina Aguilera, St. Vincent. And that is just in the music area. That is over a dozen music courses that is reason enough for you to try out this service. But once you're in there, you're going to find so many other things that you are interested in, right? You probably like writing and TV. And there's David Sedaris, Chandra Rhimes, Issa Rae, Malcolm Gladwell, Neil Gaiman, Aaron Sorkin, Margaret Atwood, Joyce Carol Oates, David Mamet, James Patterson, Dan Brown, Judy Bloom, Salman Rushdie, Amy Tan, Roxanne Gay. Let's take Margaret Atwood teaches creative writing. Right? She wrote The Handmaid's Tale. She will walk you through how to get started as a writer, how to construct a plot, a point of view, creating compelling characters, crafting dialogue, prose style and texture, how to revise, plus the stuff like the business of being a writer. So here, something maybe you just signed up for the service just to hear Danny Elfman talk about writing scores. And here you might get inspired to pursue a whole new career. And of course, you can share your login with your family. And there's going to be something for everybody on there. This holiday, give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash examined today. That's masterclass.com slash examined. Terms apply. Do you have any insight on, you know, we've had actually both of these songs start up with a, uh, with a finger picking. I know for my own finger picking, I get kind of caught into ruts or it kind of is determined of like, what am I learning to do right now? You know, at this point, you're very fluent. You know, you got a steady baseline with the thumb going. Any insight on sort of what constitutes like 
not just practicing, but, oh, this is a new riff that deserves to be its own song. Do you remember anything about creating this little bit here? Yeah, it's based around a chord progression that's, you know, one diminished, two minor diminished, flat four augmented. It, uh, you know, there's a lot of songs that utilize it. Then it had a nice melody line attached to it. And so I just went, oh man, there's something Chet would like. <laughs> and that's when you're doing finger picking to me, that's what it's all about, Chet and uh, Merle Travis. And I knew both of them, you know, and I got. I was I love finger picking. I I was better back then. Uh, I mean, I do now. I finger pick for sure. I do Mississippi John Hurt stuff, etc. But I'm 71 years old, and my hands are not quite what they were back then. So I'm glad I, I recorded it. <laughs> and then I noticed you keep doing the finger picking into the first solo section. So you got piano soloing pretty wildly over. You know, most of the song you actually just changed back into playing chords. But here you felt like. No, you could still take up that space with the finger picking, but yet have the piano rambling all over. I don't know. Was there a concern of them sort of crashing into each other <laughs> at that point? No, like I said, that band was just, uh, we just meshed so well. You know, it's a shame we lost Tim Alexander. He just passed away uh, a couple of years ago, just unexpectedly. Well, actually, it was five years ago, but that was just such a great band. I mean, really, and Larry Franklin went on to be, you know, top session fiddle player in Nashville. And, and Tim was playing what on that? Piano. All right, so you've you've sort of worked out the A section with your finger picking thing, but then you have to have the whole band do it. So the lead instrument there, that's violin doubling guitar and then sax comes in for some of it is that how you're sort of forming that now the band is playing lead yeah that's the hillbilly horns that's the hillbilly horns steel fiddle guitar sax did you ever have in any of the lineups more than one horn on stage or it's always just one guy at a time oh yeah okay one time we had three horns back in the the irs stopped that one is enough to get the feeling you can just so long you have somebody else filling out the harmony there it's a whole different thing. Octan or seven or eight in a band is what I prefer. One time we had 12 pieces, you know, and there was three horns, three fiddles. Some of the horn players switched off on fiddle and horn. So it's just different. Now we're mostly string oriented with one. Uh, we just added really Joey a year ago. Before that, we had different people playing either clarinet or sax. Now we have sax and trumpet. He plays both and it's fun. So, you know, I, just, I like to mix it up, obviously. So in terms of that, you've made up the main riff, but now it has to translate to the hillbilly horns playing it. What was the actual, like, that's not them simply jamming it. I mean, they have to play in unison, and, you know, it's pretty coordinated. So was that, like, you know, you singing at the violin player? or? Well, I mean, that's how we work, you know. Mm -hmm. You throw out a line and everybody learns it and or harmonizes on it. You know, sometimes it's unison, sometimes it's three or four part, and we just all work it out, and that's part of how you get in this band, the ability to do head arrangements with the band. Now, we did also do, like on Same Old South, which is on the, the new record, Joey and Danny Levin, the fiddle player, wrote out the arrangement for the sax and fiddle, mm -hmm. but the steel guitar was all a head arrangement. He learned that by ear. 
whatever everybody's uh, level of musicianship is, you go with it. For instance, the last one, like Jason and Dennis and Katie and them, we didn't need to write it down. We'd go, you play the third, you play the fifth, or how about the blah, 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 and you just throw the stuff around and get it done. That's just how we work. I'm sure there are conventions for sheet notation for pedal steel. I've never seen such a thing. I don't, it seems. Oh, yeah. No, and, uh, Flavio plays for us. He's an Italian. He lives in Rome and he's supposed to have been with us to accept the pandemic. He's coming back in January. He's very schooled. He was at the conservatory, but he took up Western Swing Steel and he does write it and notate it. He's, he's a trip, man. That's uh, pretty amazing. But there are guys who read, you know. I'll have to pull some of that up. I mean, even writing for a regular guitar, it's like, you know, a full, like, piano double staff. But there's more notes there. <laughs> I don't know. Is that pretty much what you're just looking at for noting for pedal steel? Is it just you're going farther up and above and maybe, you know, some play this one octave higher, that kind of thing? I don't know. Do you even I don't know? <laughs> okay. I, would, I have no idea. All I know is he transcribed the whole Jerry Bird. You know, he plays non-pedal steel. He plays, you know, eight-string thing. But still, he, yeah, there's a way to do it. But there are readers. There's one little spot I wanted to pick your brain about. This is around 222 in. So we're in the middle of a, the second piano solo. And you kind of emphasize some chords to get out of it, to get to the next section. It's like that even though you're just playing chords in the background now, you're still kind of choreographing. Just that you have those four chords, those four measures, like, okay, we're wrapping this up. Was that part of the initial composition, or is that the kind of stuff you would add in to just have some punctuation so it's not just people focusing merely on the soloist, and then the next soloist starts, etc.? That's what's called arrangement. That's the arrangement. You'll look at it and go, okay, we're going to do this, and yeah, it's the same as if it's written down. We just do head arrangements. You know? Sure. I guess, given that you have so many solos in this, did you have a vision of an overall structure that, okay, we'll have two guys solo on the A section and then one on the B? I guess that's the uh, thing. You just throw it out. You just throw it out while we're doing mm -hmm. it. You know, it's all spontaneous and they are come prepared to be creative. You know? Or who gets to solo over the B section and here that's the steel guitar. Whoever's producing. You know, I produce, you know, as the producer says, and I produce a record. But. We take suggestions from everybody. So you just, you know, somebody's got a good idea. Let's try that. And listen, no, that's not good. Let's try something else. Do you remember what determined that, okay, this is going to be one that has five co-writers that will write on it? Whereas usually... Well, that was because that was because I came up with the thing. And then Tim, I remember, wrote the uh, bridge. Da -da -ba -ba -da -da -da. Okay. You don't get credit for the solos. Well, let's get to the third song here. Am I High from The Wheel. I wanted to pick something from the early years, and this was a particularly fun one. I don't know, is this still in the set? No, don't do this much anymore. Just a little controversial in terms of some <laughs> of the, you know, the county fairs and this, that, and the other. Yes, back in 1977, as a very young person, this seems... And I saw a live version of this where you just got up front, that you're not even playing guitar on this. On the recording, I assume you're still playing guitar? Oh, it was different every night. But yes, I played on guitar. That was done in 75, 76, and it was a favorite through the 70s. And I, I love it. It sounds like it was written in the 30s. You know, that's what we we're aiming at. Awesome. 
get a little bit Me, oh my. Folks all seem to drift on by. Tell me, friend, am I high? Am I high? Please don't lie. Or have my legs been rubberized? Tell me, true friend, am I high? Was it that gauge that incited my rage? Oh, was it that booze that made me so confused? Or perhaps that cocaine that caused me to exclaim as I fell to the floor? Give me more, give me more. Am I high? My mouth sure is dry. I keep on laughing till I cry, asking myself. Am I high? All right. The other guy who wrote it was didn't actually write it. <laughs> he was just a friend of ours, Peter Scher. Okay, but you co it says you co-wrote it with Chris, Chris O'Connell. Yeah, I guess I, I guess we did. Okay. So I mean, do you remember how that even worked? I do have okay. no recollect I have no recollection of how that song got written at all. I know Peter was there 
I said, well, what rhymes with something? He said something. I said, okay, you're a co-writer. So you start off with this, I guess, Danny Levin playing this crazy, you know, very harsh fiddle. As you said, you don't get co-writing for doing a solo, even if it's like a contributes heavily to what the mood of this is. No, you get hired to play fiddle. Uh-huh. And the fact that you've got a whole scat section here that, uh, you know, the B section is pretty intense with the give me more, give me more. And that one of the three times that it happens, you're just scatting through that whole thing. So it really lets you just chew the scenery in a, in a great way. Yeah, it was a 30s drug song, you know. That was our goal. Was there a particular thing that you ha- sort of had in mind that you're satirizing this vaguely Sinatra? Da, 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 da. Like, I don't, Bing Crosby, do you even know what, what you're satirizing here? Yeah, Crooners, but who I love, you know, biggest Sinatra fan and Bing, uh, as there is. So, but we're having fun. Yeah, yeah. It's 20, it's 25 years old or having a good time. And uh, it always was a fun thing to do live because it would swing the mic around and we'd just go crazy. It was good. But as we got older, when people started bringing their families, we went, oh, yeah, we probably shouldn't be doing this in front of the kids at this point. Well, it's still the fun of it. However that translates you know, into older Ray is still definitely in the set. We've talked a little bit about the progression of like how many songs are in the set now that you can pull out of your ass if you need to? Like, is it four hours worth of stuff that you kind of... Yeah, yeah. You know, we'd have to brush up on it. And now that Dave Sanger's retired, no, because Dave was with the band 35 years. So now the drummer now only has a very small repertoire compared to what we used to do. But that'll change and, we, you know, add things. But no, those days are over. If you're re-adding something, you got to decide, do we really like this song? <laughs> like, it was good enough... To put in the set if it wasn't that hard, but now that we have to like train a fresh person on it, eh, maybe not. <laughs> That's not the point thing. It's just what feels good. That's all. I like Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson's got, you know, 125, 100, 200 albums. I don't know. So he's got classic songs, but he only does, you know, he does 90 minutes. And now, in fact, he only does an hour because he's almost 89. And so you just do what you can do, you know, and there's no way to cover the entire. Thing. It used to be I could do four hours, no problem. Right now, we'd have to rehearse a little bit. And I'm changing the band again in, uh, next year, so I, I really don't even know who's going to be around. We'll find that out. Well, and you haven't been shy about re-recording things. It seems like maybe you're not overly sentimental about, you know, if you're going to listen to Take Me Back to Tulsa, you got to listen to the 1973 version. No, no, no you've, you've, you've recorded multiple versions since then. And probably whatever is the current one with the shiniest production is going to be your favorite. Or, or am I wrong about this? What is your take on? Uh... No, they're just all moments in time, you know. So I love them all, man. The new one's got George Strait and Willie Nelson on it. Oh, God, that's just incredible. Sure. First one is very nostalgic. I was 21 years old. I can hear everything wrong with it. You know, and then there's the remake in, in the eighties. And there's, I mean, if I go on YouTube, I can get a dozen versions of it and watch my, watch my hair fall out and turn gray. <laughs> but I don't go back very often. You know, I just, I'm moving forward. Well, are there a number of those songs? Clearly not that song, but that just, Oh, this has been in the set for 20 years. We got to just put it away for five years, put it away for a while. Cause this is just driving you nuts. 
there isn't a song that I don't know. Johnny Walker put away for like 25, 30 years. I didn't do it because I didn't have a girl singer who I felt it worked with. And I didn't, we were doing more Bob Wills tunes than anything from the 90s on. We were really doing classic Western swing Bob Wills music. So I just didn't want to do that song anymore. Now I do it if I got the right girl singer. And that's, we're not sure who's going to be the girl singer next year. So. And if you had the courage that you had during Am I High, then you would just sing the girl part in a silly falsetto and just, I guess that would be uh, desecrating this classic song if you were going to... Well, I yeah, I wouldn't do it, so <laughs> put it that way. All right. Uh, well, of course, we're just dipping a toe in here. And the fact that, what is it, three full albums of Bob Wills, Bob Wills tribute albums, in addition to individual songs making their way on many individual albums... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in fact, they're all double albums if, if you put them on vinyl. <laughs> Again, even though clearly you're still writing, and especially when you have time to write, there's still creative stuff coming out, but it's not like this ego-driven, I've got my uh, Leonard Cohen uh, a missive that I have to put out every year or two or whatever. Something that is lighter and more fun than that, I guess. No, we record all the time. So just the uh, marketplace has changed. So that putting out an album on a regular basis is not as important as putting a stream of songs out, the individual songs, you know, that that go out on streaming or whatever. seems to be a different approach to music. Well, let's just introduce the last tune here. So another one from the new album, in fact, the closer for the new album, The Road Will Hold Me Tonight. So we got some, like a lot of this album and your Bob Wills albums are, you know, full of these wonderful guests. So we have Emily Lou Harris and Willie Nelson on this, seeing this with you. Can you say a little about the writing of this tune and how this fits in with your your creative output? This is the lost track. It was 1981, I believe, and maybe it might have been 82, but I don't think it could have been. But the track got lost for a number of reasons, and we had the multi-track, but we couldn't use it because it was in a format that doesn't exist anymore, and trying to get it done. Now we could because they can do it on a computer, but we found it, and I don't remember writing the song. I remember the session, obviously, because it's an incredible cut. I mean, Emmylou Harris and Willie are singing at the top of their game. I mean, it's just, what's it, 40 years ago. You know, Willie was in his 40s. Emmy was in her 30s, and they were just incredible. Johnny Gimble's on it. The band that's on that is a fantastic band, and like, say, Johnny Gimble's on it. I don't remember writing it. I just remember having it (laughs) and convincing them that they ought to sing it. And what's interesting about Emmy's vocal is the original vocal was erased by the engineer by accident. And Emmy was so helpful. She went back up to Nashville and had to record it again like six months later. (laughs) So just to clarify, like, is any part of this track newly recorded or this is just remixed? No, no, one remixed. It was just we found this two track of it. And I remember telling them we didn't have a record deal. And nobody wanted to sign us for like, so that thing just sat in the vaults. And my son, I said, go look for that record. I just, I know we had a mix of that. And that's how they went down. I don't remember. I was writing a lot then, early 80s. And I was writing in modern country music. You know, it was sort of where my head was at in the early 80s. And the band had was just an in-between band of some really fine players looking for a style, you know. And I was just glad to put that out just for the uh, historical day. I guess it was very well mastered. I'll have to go back and listen again with this in mind, but it didn't strike me as like, 
oh, now the recording quality's totally changed, and now it's this old thing that you're stuffing it like... No, no, it was done with the <laughs> highest quality analog recording there ever was. Just the machines that were that was recorded off of are the best sounding machines ever made. They don't work anymore because... <laughs> that, but, and the analog gear was just the best. There was nothing wrong with the quality. It was just, it was just one of those weird deals. In a long career, so a lot of strange shit will happen. I guess that's a good theme for the episode and for the new album. Thanks so much for doing this. Really a pleasure to talk to you. You bet, man. I'm sitting there looking at those flooding all over town, so I'm going to have to get going and get out to the farm because we got a farm and there's problems out there, I'll bet. Here's The Road Will Hold Me Tonight.
Thanks so much to Ray. He was really a hoot. And in addition to hearing his various songwriting adventures, getting into Sleep at the Wheel is really just an education in this whole genre of Texas swing, of country jazz. I mean, there's his reverence to Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, but also just song after song. You can look them up on Wikipedia and see, okay, this one is from the 1920s. This one is from even earlier. You can listen to the alternate versions by the original artists. And of course, Asleep at the Wheel makes all of it very, very fun. Again, you can find out more about them at asleepatthewheel.com. And they've had so many great musicians in their lineups over the years. I was also having fun uh, Googling or looking up on Spotify, the various other songwriters and musicians like Leroy Preston, Johnny Nicholas, Chris O'Connell, and many more. A lot of these folks reappear on this new 50th anniversary album. Hope you're all enjoying your holiday season. I've taken a little break from recording these so that there's not such a long delay between recording and release. This one with Ray was recorded way back in the early November. I talked to Lily Lewis after that and James McMurtry after that. The one I am about to record after the holidays is very exciting, but I don't want to announce it yet, lest I jinx it. So to make sure you're hearing all the episodes as they come out immediately, make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed. You can find the various links to that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support the effort and never hear me read ads again, you can do that either at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, or if you're using the Apple Podcasts app, you just hit the little subscribe button. You will be charged a small amount of money to be signed up for the ad-free feeds for not only this podcast, but also my Pretty Much Pop A Culture podcast and Philosophy Versus Improv, both projects that you should check out. So maybe if you want to share as a holiday gift... A line on wonderful music and fun with your wider circle of friends. Please post the link to this episode to Nakedly Examined Music and other podcasts that I do on your social media. Absolutely spread the word. I was so honored to talk to Ray Benson, and I want that effort to pay off in terms of promotion of what he has recorded. So do share that and maybe buy some of his records if you are so inclined. Musicians are definitely having a hard time making a living during the pandemic, so if you're enjoying it, Chuck him a couple beans. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a great new year. Whatever else you celebrate. Most importantly, keep on musicking. Until and next time, this is Mark Meyer signing off. Dear John, please, Johnny, please come home. I need your love and the kids, they gotta be You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.